one of the thrills we have, I think, as designers and urban planners is to take on the challenge of the urban, the challenge of the city, the challenge of the site, and to see how we can unearth a solution, a transformation that is different and better than what exists. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here with Tony Griffin, an urban planner whose work focuses on questions of spatial justice. Tony joins us today to talk about her concept of the just city. Tony, welcome. Thank you. First of all, what do you mean by the just city? By the just city, we mean places that are achieving aspirations of acceptance, choice, democracy, engagement, and equal rights distributed across a geography, uh, across a societal construct, and particularly aimed at those who have been most marginalized. We've had conversations about the just city for all, around equal opportunity, and we've had conversations around justice for those who are not in the same position as people of privilege, and therefore their ability to attain justice is, should we say, um, handcuffed. So I think it operates on both of those scales. But in our work at the Just City Lab, we tend to focus more on marginalized populations. And in that regard, are there some cities that you would describe or find as uh, more just or less just than others? To quote my colleague, Susan Feinstein, uh, she believes that cities never really fully attain justice, but they pursue greater or more justice. A lot of my work has tended to focus on cities that are experiencing really chronic uh, conditions of injustice, deep poverty, longstanding population loss, longstanding job loss, um, residual effects of racial segregation as it relates to housing, income, educational attainment. And we focus on those cities because we think that's where the greatest work needs to be done. We focus on the, those cities because the awareness and ownership and acknowledgement of those conditions as effects of justice are sometimes not really fully discussed, and we tend to shy away from them because the work of dismantling that is very difficult. So our work is aiming to shine a direct light on those cities that are in most need of this kind of work and discussion. Following Feinstein, then, the Just City is an, is an aspirational project. Would that be fair? I think she views it as that, but she views it as a project that we should be constantly involved in. Um, because the work in cities, the development of cities is ongoing and always in flux. And there are always a group of actors making decisions in cities that have repercussions that both lend themselves towards greater justice or have the potential to deepen injustice. And so she believes that this is an ongoing pursuit that we should be more intentional about in the work we do in developing cities. Is the city necessarily the locus of the study? That is, in your work, you describe um, various layers and combinations of forms of social uh, and spatial injustice. 
And so by framing your research around the concept of the just city, are you suggesting that cities are necessarily less just than other parts of the world? Or does the city offer a a particular lens through which to study spatial injustice? I think I, in particular, focus on cities because that has been the territory of my work throughout my career as an architect, urban designer, and planner. We certainly have more mobility that are moving into, quote-unquote, cities or urbanized environments with systems that are designed to accommodate people in mass. So when I talk about city, I, I generally tend to think about highly urbanized areas, varying levels of density, but urbanization for sure. So you mentioned your background as an architect and urban planner. You've worked in uh, a number of U.S. cities for a number of years on these issues. How did you first get into this line of thinking in your work? That's an interesting path. I started my career at Skip Moorings in Maryland in Chicago uh, as an architect. And it was in SOM that I transitioned into urban design and planning and actually started working more on the ground in Chicago. After that, I went into the public sector working in Washington, D.C. and Newark and New York, uh, upper Manhattan in particular. And what tended to follow me in all of those cities were some of these conditions. Uh, These are all cities that have remnants of racial segregation through the spatialization of where people live and recreate, the disparity by income and wealth and educational attainment uh, is spatialized in terms of how the city is organized, um, and people's choices in terms of the access to amenities and infrastructures is preconditioned on some of that spatialization. So I found this ongoing trend that each city I found myself working in had this as the underpinning of the problems I was asked to consider and address. And I began to ask myself, after doing this work for some 15-plus, almost 20 years, was the work that I and my colleagues were doing around these cities aiming to address these issues really having a deep impact? Can the work we do as architects and landscape architects and urban designers, strictly through the lens of how we traditionally think about design of the built environment, were our practices really dismantling any of this? Urban planning has a history of actually creating some of these conditions of injustice, but was modern thinking around urban planning really beginning to dismantle the underlying root causes of these conditions rather than simply creating remedies for the um, outcomes of it. It's interesting that your your career as a, a public figure working in cities as diverse as Washington, D.C. and Newark and Chicago begins in that way with a, with a question. Where are you after 15 or 20 years in answering that question? How, how are we doing? I believe now, maybe more firmly than I did when I started this research now five or six years ago, that I do believe design and planning can have an impact. I believe there's much more to do, and I believe that it starts with uh, an intentionality and an acknowledgement that what we're facing in our cities and in some of our design briefs are, in fact, injustices. And to begin to articulate them in very specific ways and actually read them as such 
if we don't call them as they are, as conditions of injustice, then we're not solving for that particular condition. And so I believe that we really do have the potential to do that. I think that there are other social and political and environmental events going on right now around the world and certainly in this country that are requiring us to be more socially and politically engaged in the way in which these events are shaping our cities and regions and communities and environments. And so um, I don't know that we can much longer not call ourselves advocacy designers or planners if, in fact, we intend to address these things in in more deep and systemic ways. Hmm. So to the extent, you know, cities are the resultant of a whole set of relationships, often power relationships of various kinds, how can the brief for change in the urban environment not itself be a reinscription of that set of relationships? And how can the brief itself become a tool for critiquing that history? I mean, it strikes me that, uh, as you suggest, cities are a concentrated set of choices over time. And quite a lot of your work has focused on the inheritance of those legacy choices, if I could put it that way, uh, legacy environments, legacy cities is a formulation that you've been using most recently. Uh, why does the history of these cities have such a great weight or why is it so significant for us working today? I think part of the answer to that question is um, involves this notion of power and politics and, and who's actually involved in the city making much of which we've inherited that we are trying to dismantle as designers and planners are sometimes of our own creation from generations past alongside of policymakers who tended to be of a more monolithic ilk, if you will, in terms of education, background, race, and gender. The just city also requires us to think about a just citizenry, and therefore these notions of power, engagement, and democracy as a part of the index that we've created, the language we've created that helps define the just city, is our nod towards um, moving towards the just city involves people and place. And on the people side, it means involving a much more diverse set of actors and acknowledging and making legitimate their voice and their expertise alongside of educated uh, expertise as a part of what we now need to dismantle some of these conditions. So on the one hand, I'm making a call to educated design practitioners and scholars and policymakers to work with intention towards addressing these issues. But I'm also asking them and I'm asking folks who are not trained um, practitioners in these disciplines to also understand and acquire a knowledge around these conditions so that the co-creation of the just city can be more inclusive in terms of who sits at the table and who makes decisions. And I think that that's a fundamental difference from the way we made American cities and the way we did urban planning up until 40 years ago. Do you feel like we have the, um, the venues for these conversations? That is, do we have the both civil discourse, the capacity for it, but also the, the mechanisms or the contexts for those kinds of conversations? It's interesting. I've worked in um, now a number of U.S. cities, um, most of them uh, east of the Mississippi. Uh, so many of them 
have histories of civil unrest in the 60s and 70s, histories of urban renewal and such. And I find now practicing over the last 15, 20 years or so that not all cities retained a civic infrastructure of activism and advocacy that perhaps once existed during those more turbulent times. And so the ability to forge these conversations is not equal in all cities. And even in some of our most progressive cities, there is not a space, a vocabulary, a culture of engagement. And by engagement, I don't mean simply going out and talking to residents and having these sort of one-sided conversations about here's what I've drawn up, what do you think? I'm really talking about deep collaborative co-creation and collective action work which includes really a multi-sectoral table set for problem-solving the conditions that we have. And so what was interesting is Detroit, um, when I began working there in 2010, um, who at the time most people thought was a city that uh, we may not see today, and certainly has its histories of disinvestment, dysfunction, corruption, really still had a fairly substantial civic infrastructure that was prepared to engage with other power structures uh, for the fight of the transformation of their city. Um, However, when I go to a city like uh, St. Louis, that infrastructure is much more depleted and needs to be developed. So it's very uneven, the spaces and apparatus for doing this work, but there is the potential, I think, to grow it, and I think we have to. You mentioned your work in Detroit, uh, 2010 to 2013. You were director of the Detroit Work Project and have published a, a progressive, really ambitious plan for transformation in that city. Tell us more about that. This was a moment in time just after the release of the 2010 census when Detroit lost another 24 percent of their population making it the U.S. city that had lost the largest amount of population since its peak. The three cities were Detroit, St. Louis, and New Orleans, and New Orleans' population loss was due to a natural disaster. Um, So that was in play. The city was going through a corruption scandal by a former mayor and was being run by a mayor who took office coming out of that corruption and had an extraordinarily high portfolio of vacant land scattered across the city because we're also three years off of the recession. So the sky was falling more rapidly than it had in the preceding um, 40 years, I should say, since its population decline. And I was asked to come and help the city leaders think about a land use plan for what to do with all the vacant land. And in that conversation that I had with Rip Raps and the president of the Kresge Foundation, who subsequently was laying out for me that there were these different pillars of activity that he wanted to align his foundation around, education, healthcare, arts and culture, transportation, land use, public safety. And he saw each of them as these sort of discrete silos. It's a lot of pillars. There's a lot of pillars. Um But the point that I saw was that there were pillars in these silos. And I said to him, so you know that we could do a land use plan, but land is one of the enablers to the other pillars. 
right? Land enables perhaps the ability to have a more efficient transportation system. Land can enable a more robust economy. Land can enable stronger communities. So unless we begin to think about a comprehensive and more integrated approach to thinking about the transformation in Detroit that breaks those silos into a more integrated conversation of interdependence, um, I think that spending money on a land use plant won't really serve you well. And that launched the Detroit Works Project, which was a massive uh, three-year effort with an extraordinary team of technical and uh, civic engagement expertise working alongside the mayor, philanthropy, the business community, the nonprofit sector, and the community sector, really slogging through these extraordinarily tough issues. It was a time of great fear. Uh, They were under political change. Uh, There was fear that the white suburbs were going to take over the city. There was fear of people being moved out of their homes. There was rapid foreclosure still happening. And so people were very concerned that they were about to lose a sense of pride of place. I recall, um, I mean, in the context of the Great Recession, 2009, uh, in the wake of that, the 2010 census comes out. This is a city that's lost over a million people in the course of its history, over half a century. And there was also a, a set of media narratives around that. And as you say, anxiety around loss of agency, municipal autonomy. And so that's a pretty tough job to take on. I mean, how much did you have to think about before saying yes to a job like that? I didn't really think about all those things when I said yes. But, you know, remember, I just, I, as I said before, so I'd come from Chicago to D.C., to New York, to Harlem. So I was, you know, progressively moving my way through these very challenged cities. And I think, you know, one of the thrills we have, I think, as designers and, and urban planners is to take on the challenge of the urban, the challenge of the city, the challenge of the site, and to see how we can unearth a solution, a transformation that is different and better than what exists. And I just found the complexity of the issues, the willingness of these different sectors to come to a table, and quite honestly, the trust and faith they put in me to help them see their way through understanding the relationship of how all of these parts had to move in a different direction. And in fact, how we had to work with and educate and inform a citizenry around why certain things needed to be investigated and changed was monumental. And you don't really understand the complexity and the difficulty and the politics of doing that until you're in it and you're really unearthing the problems. We took a very data-driven approach to understanding the city. Um, we felt that that was essential to leveling the playing field of the conversation and the power structures and the ability to engage the right stakeholders in the conversation of change. It was also very important for us to communicate that it was not solely the government and the city government that was going to enable this change. And it was also important for us to put in the context that the city did not arrive this way in 2007, right? This has been a long and steady progression of disinvestment and decline. Part of what you enumerated that was already in place in 09-10 was a history of civic engagement, fora for civil discourse, 
philanthropic organizations. And so a part of what you've in a way curated or described through your work in Detroit also put Detroit back into a national conversation that I was aware of uh, about the role of design and planning. Yeah. And I think, you know, for as much as planning is maligned, and there are reasons for that, what was important for us to do and what was effective about a planning process was the ability to reestablish confidence. Right. And so if you are outside of the city looking in and you're an investor or you're a student graduating or you're a company, you are looking to see whether that city is going to lessen the risk of me investing there, investing by moving and taking a job, investing my company, et cetera. And so it was important for the process to model a collective action approach that all of these disparate power structures and stakeholders were coming together to create a collective way forward. And there was a transparency to that. And so even before the plan was finished, we began to see investment show up again in Detroit. Chinola moves its company from Arizona, I think, to Detroit. It's a brand before I, we're I, done. I only associate with Detroit. Yes. Couldn't imagine it. And it has a whole other history, some of which people aren't that crazy about. But it was things like that that were emerging even while we were doing the planning. And it's been so interesting to me five years after releasing the plan that you are hard-pressed to find a negative story about Detroit. Whereas up until the bankruptcy, which actually happened after we released the plan, Right. There was still this question, but I think our work even tempered the way the narrative about the bankruptcy was discussed, because that document was designed to be a tool to help guide administrations and philanthropy in the business sector through the changes that were necessary. And so it's been really satisfying for me to no longer hear uh, mayors of major cities say that Detroit should be imploded and we should start over. <laughs> and that um, many people in the community, from community-based organizations to staff within the Economic Development Office to folks within the Department of Transportation, to average community members, um, use this plan as a manual for the way forward in whatever corner of the city that they're working. Is it the um, principal document that anyone is using? Not necessarily. But because so many people were involved in its recommendations and how it came to be, it has a life beyond us as a planning team and that particular administration that worked with us on it. And you're, that's very, very You're satisfying. suggesting that the, the process at arriving at that uh, set of recommendations might have been just as important as the recommendations. Themselves. It was equally as important because now there is a broad array of stakeholders who have their fingerprints on it and feel a sense of ownership for it. So it is not just the city's plan. And in fact, really, no one sees it as the city's plan. No one sees it as just Kresge's plan. No one sees it just as the economic development plan. And I think that was one of the most satisfying outcomes that we could have had in addition to all the really wonderful and brilliant technical But, but people also know it. They know it as Tony Griffin's plan. I hope they know it is more than that, because it truly, truly is. 
I mean, one measure of the plan's success is the extent to which you moved the conversation beyond what had been a very long-standing opposition between private capital and its mobility on the one hand and the responsibility of um, governance on the other hand by invoking all of these other actors, yeah. civil and philanthropic and otherwise. And look, those things, those dynamics still exist, right? Because um, Detroit is a city of 139 square miles, of which you can fit Manhattan, Boston, and San Francisco into its footprint. And there were varying, varying degrees of occupation and density and activity in every corner of the city. And so the way in which markets and market forces and investments come into a city and stabilize or revitalize or gentrify is small and slow and growing. Right after we finished the plan, there was a huge amount of investment really beginning to snowball in the downtown. And folks in the community and neighborhoods were like, well, what about us? And I think this administration with good friend Maurice Cox heading the planning office and that mayor have really made very strategic decisions to focus an extraordinary amount of their capital and expertise and resources into different parts of the city, into neighborhoods. So there really is a balance and distribution of investment, but there's still quite a long way to go, as you can imagine. You mentioned the Just City Lab as a venue for your research. And uh, I know that through the lab, you've been interested in, committed to metrics, as you say, uh, and you have this formulation of the, the Just City Index. Tell us about like, what are the measures that you look for? What are you evaluating and how might those measures be indicative of a greater or lesser degree of spatial or social justice? We have two tools that we have developed and experimented with through the lab and through um, the initiation of this work at the J. Max Bond Center. One is the index. So the index is a vocabulary of 50 values. And the intention behind that was really a response and a little bit of a critique to other metric frameworks around livability, sustainability, resilience, that give you a pre-prescribed set of indicators and values. And let's say they're 12. And no matter what city you're in, in what part of the world you are, you are not X unless you are these 12 things. And given the types of cities that I've been working in and just looking across cities in the U.S., which is where I spent most of my time working, you might think that Detroit and Chicago and St. Louis and Gary and Baltimore are similar. But in fact, there are nuances to those cities that make the notion of justice quite different. Going deeper, if you were to talk to the north side of St. Louis and then talk to the south side of St. Louis, their notions of a just city would be quite different. And so we wanted communities and cities to have the ability to craft their own narrative around what would be a just Pittsburgh, a just St. Louis adjust Detroit, adjust Chicago. And so the index allows us as designers, it allows folks we work with, it allows communities, it allows policymakers to think in a much more nuanced way what it means when I say equity, what it means when I say sustainable, what it means when I say resilient, 
and to allow those communities to fill in the blanks with more specificity around does equity mean more respect? Does it mean more inclusion? Does it mean access? Does it mean giving communities more choices? And in doing so, we move away from ubiquitous terms that when you move them into the space of conversation, you never know whether you and I mean the same thing. And I wanted to dismantle that as a way, particularly in in my work where I try to bring together people of difference to work on these complex issues, it's important that they create a shared vocabulary, that they understand and appreciate the nuances of different meanings, but then come to a shared meaning. So the index is that tool, and we've created a workshop uh, that we uh, did in South Africa and Amsterdam this summer. Uh, we partnered with the Veld Academy in Rotterdam and did a five-day masterclass. And we've used it in other workshops and situations that allow students, practitioners, policymakers to embed this language into their work. Your Just City Index makes use of metrics, um, a range of issues, choice, happiness, tolerance, and so on, that are meant to indicate personal and subjective points of view. Is it fair to read your approach to the Just City as an implicit but polite critique of the um, euphemisms and cliches associated with uh, community engagement, broadly speaking? (laughs) I have a deep desire for people to be understood. And I often find a couple of things. One, when I'm asked to come into a city and create a process, I usually have a group of people around the table who are of a singular cohort whose networks don't touch everyone and don't have the ability to touch everyone. So the first thing we have to do is expand that table, right? But then when we expand that table, I quickly discern that we have different languages. And we certainly have different meanings for the language that we use. I do rail against um, these sort of brands uh, that are meant to mean a singular thing. I am very clear that the Just City does not mean the same thing for everybody, and I don't want it to be, which is why the index affords people options of a language that they can grab from to create their own. So a great example, I was doing a focus group in St. Louis recently asking people to think about what equity means in St. Louis and giving them the ability to pull from this language to to prompt them about language. And so this, this, the value of safety comes up. And the woman looks at me like, I don't know what you mean. And I said, well, it could mean, you know, your personal safety. Do I feel safe, for example, as a woman in this space? Um, Is it well lit? Uh, Who's lurking around me? Is there a sense of protection, right? Lighting could be a form of protection. Police can be a form of protection. So I was trying to describe to her the things that I thought safety meant. And she looked at me like, I still don't know what you mean. And so as a facilitator, it was my job to try to help her relate to what I was putting on the table and then offer up her own suggestion. This is a young woman whose brother was recently um, killed by gunfire. And this is a woman who has built her career around activism in this city. 
And as we talk some more, what she revealed is not a real connection to the word safety, because in parts of her community, safety equals police, and police equals a surveillance, and safety therefore does not mean a protection that advantages me. What she instead wanted it to mean was permission, that a person could be in a space and not have to feel they have to ask for permission to be there. So a kind of personal liberty. A personal liberty, acknowledging that there are people in our community who move through the world not always sure that they belong, not always sure that they will be accepted. And while that's a very complex and deep and interesting unpacking of that word, I think that kind of diversity of understanding of these terms that we use permeates most conversations that we have when we're doing collective action and collaborative work. And so when I say one of my deepest desires is for people to be understood, I'm trying to figure out how, by the way I practice as a designer and planner, can help enable that. This takes time. It does. And therefore it's... And intention. (laughs) Intention, time. A part of what you're suggesting to me is a a combination on the one hand of a kind of deep set of values, deep commitment Mm -hmm. to the questions, um, kind of empathy, but also a a kind of reflexive relationship to your own professional formation and training. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're eminently well qualified, um, you know, deeply, deeply experienced, but capable of being critical of the terms of art of your own vocation, right? I mean, a part of what 50 metrics allow one to do is to get past the technical jargon to unearth, well, what do you really mean? And if in this case for this woman... There's no conception of safety or security per se. It's more the authorization, the agency to be in public space without needing to feel that she has to ask for permission. How long does it take you to get to that level of understanding with someone? I don't think it necessarily has to take an inordinately long period of time. I, I think those of us who are trained to seek solutions the more we also skill ourselves with the ability to design and embed ways of opening up conversations, setting up prompts, just two or three more inquisitive questions, I think, get at these issues. And I don't think it's that hard. You know, if if we had had that conversation and, you know, it was just about equity, And I was asking you to then go off and design equity for me. Go be equitable. Where would you go? (laughs) I'd call you, first of all. But by me asking people, well, tell me what are some of the values that show up when you hear equity and they begin to give you three or four. And then safety shows up and you begin to ask, well, what would make you feel safe? And they might tell you something that may be something that registers with you already or what, what this young woman tell me. But you then have, are armed with more information that allows you to enrich your design strategies to accommodate those requests and therefore achieve a more, I think, authentic notion of equity. But really be able to reveal that as a representation of how we create 
spaces that are more safe? How do we create spaces that are more tolerant? And I think that those create actually more interesting problem sets for us as designers. The specificity, you've touched on the specificity of the differences in these cities. Among other things, you've suggested that, you know, just Detroit looks different than a just Boston, looks different than a just Miami. Can you tell us about the role of images? It's interesting to me that you, mm-hmm. in addition to the use of language and empathy mm-hmm. and a kind of ethical grounding of understanding, another you know dimension of your practice and your research seems to focus on the role of images and image making. And that's, mm-hmm. that's something that we've been talking with a number of people about recently. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, we know that um, you know in the history of our fields, uh, the history of planning, images have been used in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. They're used to sell. They're often used to manipulate. Mm-hmm. They're often used to dissemble. But there's an aspect of your research in which I, th- I think you're suggesting that the look of the place, the image that it appears to conform to or to adopt, the difference between those images is significant in your work. Yes, because I believe that for someone to feel like a place is for them doesn't always look like Grant Park in Chicago pre-2000, right? A Burnham planned park, very formal, has spaces for comfort, has spaces of greenery, very beautiful, adjacent to the lake, uh, manicured in some spaces, right? So the Gardens of the Art Institute, right? These are public places for all. Could you generalize that to the broader history of landscape architecture in America? I mean, you've got you've got these great works from from the East Coast as well, yeah. you know, Central Park, Boston, sure. Back Bay, Fence. Right, and, and these are democratic spaces for all, but sometimes that design language can signal exclusion for someone. Right, there perhaps is something too precious or manicured about it, too formal about it that sends these registers of back to the permission thing. Now, ironically, one of my favorite public spaces is actually in Grant Park, well, Millennium Park, which is the Crown Fountain. So Crown Fountain are these massive 30-foot towers that display, you know, every five or seven minutes, these different faces of Chicagoans. And in a city that is deeply racially segregated, north and south, with very few places in the city where people of difference come together, here you have now in the middle of this early 20th century formal space, these faces of Polish kids and Mexican kids and African-American kids and white kids and just skinny, fat, round. So you just, there is this way in which design has signaled to me, you know, in a city of deep divide, that this is not a space. This is the fountain, the the work of the sculptor Yome Plinza, and this is the projection of these faces at the scale of, you know, several stories of a building, you know, and just the literal representation of that in public space is, it's extraordinary. I I want to touch on, um, in the time that we have left, Miami. I know that, um, you know, your work has taken you to a number of cities across the Americas. Recently, you've spent some time in Miami, spent some time with some folks in Overtown. And I want to just ask you about that experience, what you saw there, and any observations you might have in the context of your work. 
Well, I um, tagged along with two of my colleagues on a series of research and design studio and seminar work that was exploring a really broad and interesting set of uh, different conditions. Overtown is, you know, what we find is one of these classic African-American communities that in its heyday of vibrancy was adjacent to a thriving downtown, but was a forgotten and leftover part of the city, and then went through deep disruption and disinvestment, and now has cycled back as the place to be. So here again, we find this reoccurring condition of a community that has been long forgotten, that is now being rediscovered and trying to hang on to both its history of culture and place and people. So while it was in this climate that I am not familiar with but deeply enjoyed, uh, the problem is so familiar to communities that I am addressing on the East Coast and in the Midwest. I think one of the things that struck me about that, which I think is related to the work that we still have to do, which is around this notion of ownership and empowerment and the capacity of people and organizations in those communities to really be in a position to be a part of the change. And by be a part of the change, be a part of the change in place. So not just a subject to the change, not just a venue in which change happens. Right. And I'm going to bring this back to a pitch for planning again. Planning's job to me is to foresee where we need to get ahead of the market and put in place measures, mechanisms, plans, capacities that enable communities like that to withstand and more productively participate in that market flux. And trying to figure out where communities are on that spectrum and then where to productively intervene, I think is where the exciting work of planning, particularly municipal planning, should be. And that your ability to do that with the constituents of that community and build a robust capacity whether it's through your community development infrastructure, whether it's through private capital infrastructure in terms of investing, you have the ability to nudge that in a direction. And I, I wasn't sure how much of that was in place. The capacity to do that was in place. But there, to me, I think, is the opportunity uh, of work to be done by our disciplines. Tony, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham, and Jeffrey Vallade is our recording engineer. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.